So, uh, hello everyone and welcome to the third uh, Marketing Meetup webinar. Today it's an absolute pleasure to be welcoming Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK and may I say a real life Cinderella story man. Uh, Rory started in 1988 as a graduate trainee at Ogilvy and has since raised through the ranks to be uh, the vice chairman, which I might say is the most vague job title possibly in the world, but I think that's quite conscious. Um, in effect, it gives Rory the freedom to explore advertising as well as look to elevate the industry um, in many ways. So through his article, um, Spectator, but also through many podcasts, uh, the webinars and all sorts of things. Uh, Rory personally has had a huge influence on my career personally. Uh, we've had the pleasure of meeting a couple of times, but the first time was at my time at Business of Software, um, where I used to work for Mark Littlewood. Um, he was one of the first world-class marketing speakers that I've ever seen in my life. So I just want to say thank you to you, Rory. That's like unreal. Uh, you really set me up with a foundation for the rest of my career. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, and as a fun fact, he's also the owner of a Japanese style toilet, uh, which I think is pretty damn cool. So the way today that today is going to work is Rory's going to give a short presentation. Uh, we may have a short chat beforehand, um, and then we'll open things out to Q&A. Uh, before we do that, uh, and by the way, the Q&A function is just found beneath here. Um, so if you wiggle your mouse, mouse you'll be able to see Q&A, and you can ask questions in there. Before we get going, I just want to say a big thanks to the sponsors. Um, coronavirus has changed the entire way the marketing meters, uh, marketing meetup has operated. Um, and I won't go into them in depth here, but I just want to say thanks to Pitch, Content Cal, Fiverr, Redgate, Cambridge Master College, Lido, Brand, Further, Third Light, and Human. Um, all these companies have stood by our side and said, look, we want to support the marketing community, which has been unreal and uh, enabled us to carry on doing what we're doing. Uh, one ask from me is just to say to them uh, in the follow-up email to say thank you very much for helping us out because uh, it's truly appreciated. So with that preamble fully completed, I just want to say welcome to the legend that is Rory Sutherland. Thank you very much for being here today. Right. Well, I'll start off, I think, just chatting before i share any slides yes. um and one of the things I, I i've called this talk very provisionally where did it all go wrong and i'd just like to talk a little bit about i think some roads not traveled by the marketing services industry over the 20 or 30 years in which i've i've worked within it and normally, I'd feel a little bit reluctant to give a talk about, you know, God, why were, why were we such idiots? But I think we do have a unique moment here for large-scale collective reinvention and a large-scale collective rethink. And I started off, I think I've written a piece for campaign saying this, that if I ran an agency myself, one of the strange things I'd do is I'd mandate simultaneous holidays. So that at the moment, we just about do this around Christmas, you know, around Christmas, you know, for about six or seven days, you don't get many emails from colleagues. It all goes a bit quiet and everybody arrives back simultaneously refreshed. And I think rather like northern industrial towns, which used to have a factory fortnight where everybody went on holiday at the same time. 
often they went at the same place. They'd all go to Blackpool and you'd have kind of Glasgow week in Blackpool. Uh, where I mean, And this was partly, I think, driven by the needs of industrial um, plant, which is, you know, you had to have some sort of week where you decoked your smelting machine or something. And therefore, um, you send everybody home simultaneously for that week. And so everybody holidayed together. But the value of having everybody emerging refreshed from a period of withdrawal simultaneously, I think is actually useful. I think there's a reason why religions have Sabbaths and fasts and Ramadan and, and so forth simultaneously, which is it's a kind of reboot. It's a bit like at a collective level, that thing that you should always turn your laptop off uh, you know, every few days or turn your mobile phone off and restart it every few days. And I, th I think this very rare, unprecedented and imposed simultaneous lockdown is an opportunity for us to rethink things and is a case of, I think, forced, um, a forced rethink. There's a wonderful, wonderful experiment I'm very, very fond of because it shows the power of habit, which was a few years back, there was a selective London transport strike which affected two or three lines on the London Underground, but not the others. I seem to remember the Circle Line was unaffected, I think, but for example, the Victoria Line, the Northern Line, and one other line, maybe the Piccadilly Line, went on strike. <laughs> and so everybody who normally used those lines to travel into work was forced to formulate a plan B. And some interesting people from a mix of universities went to London Transport and they got the Oyster Card, the, the, the anonymized but still personalized Oyster Card behavioral data for a group of people before, during and after the strike. Mm -hmm. And they discovered, as they, I think they predicted, but they certainly uh, um, proved, that a surprisingly large minority of people changed their behavior even after the strike had ended. In other words, the strike had forced them to reevaluate how they got to work. It had forced them to attempt, um, you know, a second best option as they saw it. Mm -hmm. And a surprisingly large number of people stuck with their second best option, either always or sometimes after the strike had ended. And it might have been that they never realized that the second best option even existed before they were forced to choose it. Because, you know, quite often what we do is we find a route to work. We know roughly how long it takes. Therefore, we know that if we take that route, we can be fairly sure of not being late for work. And so we stick with it, partly for reasons of low variance, not necessarily optimality. And what would happen is that people forced to choose the route B. Perhaps in some cases they discovered that route B was faster or quicker. In other cases, they might have discovered that although it was four minutes longer, there was a Marks and Spencer's Simply Food at one of the stations, so you could use it without breaking your journey home, uh, you know, to go and stock up on chicken tikka masala or whatever. Or maybe they discovered that if you took the Thames link rather than, say, the Northern Line, although it was four minutes slower, uh, you had more chance of getting a seat and it was above ground so you could use your mobile phone. I mean, who's to know? But what was interesting is that sometimes an imposed jolt to a system improves the health of the system overall. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd be missing an opportunity if we don't use this enforced external jolt to rethink the way we do things. And one of the best examples of this, by the way, as I see the participants creep past the 203 <laughs> mark, someone briefly left and rejoined, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, is quite simply, you know, um, 
the importance of video conferencing and remote working and the way in which we could significantly use this to reinvent the way we do business. And there are about five different reasons I like to do this, one of which is it might solve the property crisis to a degree, because arguably if you only had to be in London for three days a week, where you could feasibly live would expand enormously. And since area expands at the square of distance, you, know, you don't have to get far beyond the M25 before affordable property becomes available, actually. Um, and so one of the things that worries me about, you know, the ad industry is and worries me about how we recruit is that the ask that you have to live in London in order to work in it is a fairly significant, you know, we worry endlessly about, for example, gender bias or ethnic bias, but this is a pretty extreme geographic bias. I remember talking to an applicant who'd got a third. She was brilliant, but she's got a third. And ironically, she said, weirdly, with my third in medicine, I'm much better off than all my contemporaries at university because my mum lives in London. Wow. Said, so I can crash down there and go job hunting in a way that they simply can't. I can take short term job opportunities and see what transpires in a way that, you know, someone living in Barnsley simply can't. Absolutely. So that's just a very, that's a very trivial part of it. Uh, the, other tri the other very important part is I'm now talking to 211 people with no idea where on the planet you may be. Uh, you're all over the place. I haven't had to go to a sodding airport, uh, you know, pack a bag, remember my passport, book a taxi. I haven't had to go to any arse-aching pain in order to speak to you all. <laughs> um, oh, someone from Houston, one of my favourite cities, by the way. Um, absolutely wonderful place. Delighted to see that. Um, but the, the fantastic thing is that I suddenly realised two days ago, I've always been a Zoom advocate. And it's very, very important in business, not least because you can win business over Zoom that you can't win over email and over the telephone. So it's a, um, it fills, if you, if you look at the sort of funnel for getting paid work, there's a huge missing link between getting on a plane and seeing someone and having a phone conversation or an email exchange in terms of what you might call the, you know, the translation from a prospect to a customer. And Zoom fills that gap extraordinarily well. But it also occurred to me two days ago when I started the day speaking to someone in Australia, one of my colleagues um, has hoofed it to Sydney. About Four hours later, I was talking to about 100 people in Bucharest. Two hours after that, I was talking to three people in Atlanta. Yep. And it suddenly occurred to me, this made more difference to my ability to do business than if WPP had bought me a Learjet or a Gulfstream, <laughs> uh, of which, by the way, I think the, the uh, likelihood is pretty remote. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that for eleven ninety nine a month, which I think is the cost of your own private Zoom subscription, you, whether you're a one-man band and based in Latvia, can have conversations with anybody anywhere, and I think the future of the world might end up with being one which is physically quite localist and intellectually extraordinarily cosmopolitan. And um, so that, that fascinates me because I think it's a way, and I've been, by the way, just in case you think I'm a late convert, I've been a Zoom evangelist um, and, and, a, and a video call evangelist within my team of 15 people in London for about the past year and a half. So one of the things we were doing years before this happened was literally Zoom Fridays. And I argued 
There were about three big reasons why the ad industry hadn't adopted what is the most important technology to transform our working lives in 15, 20 years. One of which is there's a bias against introverts in all behaviours. Most people in Ogilvy are introverts, by the way. Most people in advertising, although they'll do the presentation stuff, but the minority or possibly small majority of, of extroverts drive behaviour. And so I'll give you an example, okay? You have a client wants to brief three agencies. The client's based in Frankfurt, okay? Now, the briefing could take place over Zoom perfectly well, mm -hmm. extremely well, right? But once one of those agencies decides to send two account men out by plane to Frankfurt, the other th two or three agencies are forced to follow suit for fear of looking lazy or uncommitted. And so an enormous amount of extraneous and non-value generating behavior is driven by this kind of competitive effort signaling. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of extroversion signaling. Extroverts can bully introverts. No, you must come. We need you there. You've got to be. You don't get the opposite. And I was saying earlier, you don't get people at Everest Best Base Camp going around going, don't bother climbing to the top. Why don't you just stay in your tent and read Proust? It'd be lovely. Okay. You never get that. You'll know this when you go on with a family on a country walk, the duration and length of the walk is determined by the most energetic participant, which is why people are often reluctant to go on walks. Because you've had a nice two and a half mile walk and you think that's about right in terms of a decent stroll. And there's always one bastard who goes, well, it's another two miles up that hill. And we'll be able to see the view from Badger's Snatch. <laughs> and you're forced to go along with them because you can't really bunk out and go home. So introversion, extroversion, and the asymmetry between those two is an important factor. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing I think is an important factor is coordination, the coordination problem. The open plan office has set back uh, Zoom use by about you know, seven years, because if you're in the office, it's actually more difficult to bloody well have a Zoom meeting and find a meeting room than it is to have a physical meeting. Absolutely. You can't very well do it in public. Someone did try and invent something that looked a bit like a motorcycle helmet, which was a, a private mic that covered your face for that <laughs> purpose. But I can see all manner of reasons of social embarrassment why that's never going to take off. But what we did, what we invented in the behavioral science practice was Zoom Fridays. We said, look, certain parts of the week will focus on what you might call concentrated, intense, withdrawn work or virtual work, email, video conferencing, deck writing, ad writing, um, article writing. David Ogilvy never wrote a word in the office, didn't write any of his ad copy in the office, didn't write any of his, um, uh, um, his books in the office, too many distractions, as he put it. And I said, look, if we can compartmentalize the week and all do it in the same way, so that when we're in the office, we dedicate our time to face-to-face -to -face exchange, which is the only area of, of, of human contact in which the office has an advantage. Mm -hmm. And then dedicated pockets of time will will devote to either virtual contact or email and that might also apply to early mornings i've always said to my team look don't struggle to get into the office at nine o'clock in the morning and then spend two hours doing email those emails would have been exactly the same if you've been at home so there's no sense in struggling in on a crowded train on by the way in which you can't do any email rather than doing email from eight till nine thirty, and then traveling in on an empty train in which you can continue to work or think or get on with worthwhile work.
And so there's, there's that coordination problem. There's the introversion problem. And then I think there's also an interesting problem with um, Zoom, which this particular um, crisis has helped solve, which was the quality of a video call was always determined by the crappiest participant. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the ladder, which was typically, by the way, the most senior person in the meeting. <laughs> and so for whatever reason, um, and I, I, I don't, now that's a very good question that's just emerged. That's why you need an office is accidental, natural collisions. But I think we can also recreate natural and accidental collisions on Zoom. Yeah, well, we've been doing the same uh, with the, the Marcus Meetup Conversation Clubs. Exactly. So, so actually, I think we can start to use digital technology to simulate. I always envy BBH has a wonderful lobby because to get from one part of BBH to another part, you have to go through this central coffee shop. Yeah. Ogilvy, to some extent, I used our ground floor coffee shop for the same purpose. If you sit there for long enough, mm-hmm. you'll bump into everybody you need to talk to anyway without needing to uh, fix a meeting. That's it. But that kind of thing can be recreated um, uh, electronically. And by the way, um, the, other, the other thing about electronic meetings is that we'll start to rethink um, properties of meetings which are purely a product of their physicality don't need to be replicated. A lot of meetings don't need to last an hour. Now, a physical meeting needs to last an hour in many ways because if you've asked someone to cross town to come to your agency, you feel a bit of a dick if you only talk to them for 15 minutes. <laughs> this was the curse when I was based in Canary Wharf because people would come out and they'd show me their book. And I go, it's a great book, fantastic, I like your ads. Uh, you need to go and see Emma and Charlie, who are the then creative directors, and see if they'll give you a job. Now, that would only take me 10 or 15 minutes to determine that. But because they'd travelled to Canary Wharf, I had to give them another 45 minutes because otherwise I felt I'd dick them around. (laughs) Brainstorms, by the way, which we try and cram into one meeting, and there are interesting brainstorming tools like Miro, which is a kind of virtual whiteboard, which we're investigating at this very moment. But brainstorms would be much better split into two. So you actually have a period of immersion, which may be 25, 30 minutes, okay? Then you have a week off, which is fermentation. And then you maybe have a few hours of intense ideation at the end. Now, the reason we tried to cram all of those three phases into one was because of the coordination costs, and in many cases, the travel costs of getting everybody in the same room required you to do it that way. Mm-hmm. By the way, the last part could even be physical once this virus goes away. Mm-hmm. But suddenly we can rethink things. But then that final point I mentioned, which is that the great thing about this thing is that everybody is forced to be at least half competent. At you. I think the great success of Zoom was that it was easy enough to use with a single click that you actually felt a bit of a dolt if you failed technologically. <laughs> but I mean, think about it, okay? If you had an account man, you had an account man, you sent them to a client meeting, they said, oh, I missed the train because I couldn't find Waterloo Station, okay? You wouldn't allow them to get away with that shit more than twice, right? But for some reason, it was almost a badge of honor to be shit at video conferencing. <laughs> you know, people would do it with extreme background noise or, you know, with you know, a bright window behind them so they looked like a paedophile in a Channel 4 documentary. You know, I mean, hopeless, hopeless video conferencing techniques. No one invested any money in any kit. And so finally, I think this thing has jolted people into realizing And I think the introvert minority stroke silent majority, because I'm not quite sure what the ratio is. Mm -hmm. The introvert 
silent majority will now be able, I think, to voice its preferences a little more confidently by saying, actually, if by default every large meeting becomes both physical and virtual, then this is something that, by the way, interests me hugely um, in the behavioral science area, which is the idea of libertarian legislation, which is legislating for choice. Now, if that sounds like a really strange concept, the idea of in, 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 enacting laws to improve the area of human choice. Mm -hmm. um, it's worth remembering that um, when John Stuart Mill wrote uh, on liberty, he's as much preoccupied with how you free people from um, social pressure and social conformity as he is the question of liberty from governmental oppression. And so I think there are many cases where if you simply legislate, as it were, or we make it a rule within WPP that if you have a meeting of more than seven people, you have to op offer a Zoom alternative. Uh, huge fan of the meeting OWL. If nobody knows about this, when I've finished, go to owllabs.com. It's owl as in the bird. And have a look at the technology. It's a wonderful uh, 360 degree camera. You plonk in the middle of a meeting room table and the camera automatically focuses in on the person or people who are talking. It'll intelligently create a kind of triptych if there are three people all talking at once. Brilliant. And I've been a huge devotee of these technologies for ages. But offering people choice then means that there's nothing abnormal about choosing one rather than the other. No. And there's a wonderful person, very, very bright local MP, who's a Conservative MP for Faversham, who's called Helen Waitley. And one of her most interesting pieces of legislation is a rule that when you advertise for a job, it is assumed by default that the job offers flexible working unless the ad states a good reason to the contrary. So obviously, if you're a cop, you know, you can't work from home. I get that, right? But nonetheless, what it does is it simply changes the default. So instead of having most jobs being inflexible with a small minority of jobs offering a degree of flexibility of hours or place, instead, the default is deemed to be the other way around, mm -hmm. which is you have to stipulate the restrictions rather than stipulating the freedoms. Now, what was fascinating about this, and this is true, I think, of all legislation that offers more choice, is Helen, quite rightly, uh, intended this to be of particular value to working mums? And sure enough, I think, you know, it, it gained a huge amount of support mm -hmm. from a variety of campaign groups which campaigned for the fact that one of the disadvantages that women uh, suffer in the workplace is simply that if you spend five or six years primarily engaged in childcare and lose visibility in the office, it's a disproportionate career setback, you know, equivalent to being sent to jail, you know, if you like. I mean, obviously not in reputational terms. <laughs> but you know, if I look at my own career, you know, when, when various people made this case to me, I was president of the IPA in London, like the four A's um, uh, in, in the US uh, for a two year term, 2009 to 2011. My kids were born in 2001, they're twins. Mm -hmm. um, non-identical so useless for experimental purposes um, <laughs> but um, but they're both twins born in 2001 if i had done what my wife had done which is i'd been out of the workplace or, or rather invisible not necessarily physically out of the workplace but i'd been invisible between 2001 and 2006 my chance of being ipa president would have gone from being you know i don't know 60 percent to about 10 
Okay, so we can't deny that this is really an interesting thing. But what Helen immediately discovered is as soon as she proposed this, not only did she get huge support from her intended target audience, which was working women, she got equal amounts of support from men who wanted to do something similar. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was childcare, sometimes it was caring, sometimes it was just, look, you know, I'm 61, I really want to retire to the coast, Mm-hmm. I can't do that with a five-day commute because yeah. I'll be bankrupt and exhausted, mm-hmm. but I can do that with a three-day commute. Yeah. And so you know, I, I met a guy, very interestingly, who retired from a very senior position in a huge British bank when he was on an insane amount of money. I mean, literally insane. And um, uh, he went plural and started living in France for four days of the week commuting down by train, coming into London Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, which technically is called a twat. It's it's an acronym (laughs) for someone who comes into London Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, just in case, you know, you think I'm being expensive. (laughs) And um, uh, shortly after doing that, he, you know, he was enjoying himself and doing some quite interesting work. Someone came to him and offered him another obscene amount of money to go back to a five-day week. And he sat down and said, how much would I need to be paid in order to work that way again? And he sat down and after 10 minutes, he and his wife agreed that there was no amount of money that would have made it worthwhile going back into that pattern of work. So what was wonderful about this is it was legislation with a very narrow target audience in mind, which then ended up having a far wider appeal. For sure, for sure. And I said, as a marketer, you should always look for that. Be very, very careful if you've got a new product in doing very targeted marketing from the off. Because whatever product you have will almost certainly have multiple target audiences. Mm -hmm. And therefore, one of the arguments for mass marketing, particularly early on, is precisely to discover what your real target audience is. Because your presumed target audience is almost certainly smaller or maybe even diametrically wrong. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so, you know, it's an important point that the, um, the idea of media efficiency uh, might actually be limiting uh, because the very urge to talk to a predefined audience means you never discover who the real audience might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoke to someone who developed a fairly good scientific hangover cure and they'd assumed their target audience was 25 year olds it wasn't uh, it wasn't 25 year olds on a Wednesday it was as you can get 35 year olds on a Friday evening <laughs> absolutely because actually 25 year olds if you, when you're 25 if you think back to the time your hangovers were bad but yeah. they were gone by 11 o'clock the next day <laughs> you recover. When, when, when you're 45 it's a lost weekend okay <laughs> those are the people who really wanted the product so, there's, so, there's so that's that's my one sort of weird enthusiasm at the moment which is how we can use this to reinvent how we work and when i said take away the usual assumptions now i'm i particularly believe that wpp is an entity this is me talking totally out of school okay mm-hmm. but you have a large entity like wpp where far too much of the talent is siloed mm-hmm. and far too much of the talent within wpp is by the way policed by account people who essentially isolate the value-creating parts of their businesses to prevent them giving any value away. And actually, the ability to create virtual businesses across WPP silos, bypassing some of those gatekeepers, strikes me as an extraordinarily valuable way in which you can almost create new virtual businesses from scratch. 
So within WPP, we are the behavioral science practice at, uh, as part of Ogilvy Consulting. We're 15 people. Uh, we can grow, I think, quite easily, even with this crisis, mm -hmm. because it, you know, if, if there's one thing that's proved slightly virus-proof, um, behavioral science advice is, uh, is still fairly current, and it's something we can deliver remotely fairly well. But freed up by Zoom, we could turn that into a 200-person business simply by saying who out of your 40,000 employees is interested in participating and um, what expertise can you bring? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, it might be slightly mischievous and their managers may get slightly paranoid, but what the hell? That's not really my problem. <laughs> um, and so the capacity to reinvent the way we work. I, if, you, if you want one of my rants about this business, the separation of media and creative um, was one of the dumbest decisions ever taken by uh, the marketing services industry because the two are inextricably linked. Um, the great answer there um, to Montserrat is to be honest um, if you what well, this is exactly one of the points I made is a lot of people want to work for the Ogilvy behavioral science practice and there's a limit to the speed at which we can feasibly grow given unless we you know unless we go and seek separate funding from elsewhere on the other hand if we have a WPP virtual behavioral science practice my I think you may have muted. Behavioral science in Tbilisi. So you can literally go and get a job anywhere in a WPP agency, sign up to this entity, and um, we can work together. So, you know, one of the great things is I'm bypassing a huge bureaucracy. If, you, if your current skill is largely in, um, um, oh, sorry. I'm not muted. I think that was a that was a computer glitch. My huge apologies. Um, so, if your skills are largely in media or your skills are largely in PR, go and get a job in a PR agency. But you can still be a behavioural scientist in your spare time, if you like, awesome. because this technology changes all of that. And you know, I, I would uh, um, very very eagerly with the chief technology officer of WPP, who, who's a fantastic visionary. One of the things we're planning to do is to sit down and say, okay, you can actually use this to reinvent the business. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about how the internet would change the way we worked, mm -hmm. but we totally missed things like the fact that emails kind of shit. And email suffers from, by the way, that exact you know exact problem of the country walk which is the person in your team who's the heavy email user sets the pattern of work for everybody else to some extent. And um, it's the, what you simply have to realise is that typing is incredibly slow compared to speaking. Mm -hmm. And it's a very simple thought experiment which you may not have noticed. thing that it's slow in that you can edit yourself I, I, I grant that um, but on the other hand it's um, it's not only slow in that people don't communicate at uh, you know at proper bandwidth speed it, it loses nuance it often offends people unintentionally because it's completely lacking in tonality 
the great writer, um, it's a brilliant American comic writer, and I've briefly forgotten his name, the Sage of Baltimore, he's always known as, and someone will, someone will helpfully type up his name in a second. Um, um, uh, not David Sedaris, uh, but it, it, it's, an, it, it's a kind of early 20th century writer. He always wanted to... H.L. Mencken, thank you very much indeed. That was great, <laughs> wasn't it? The hive mind, you see, doesn't let us down. Um, H.L. Mencken uh, always wanted a form of type that was the opposite of italics, which slopes the opposite way, which he wanted to call ironics. Mm -hmm. So that when you said anything ironically or sarcastically, you'd put it in this sort of backward sloping typeface to make clear that you weren't intended to be taken seriously. And we try with emails, with emojis and exclamation marks to take the sting out of what we say. But I must have inadvertently offended people, you know, on many occasions. And of course, you know, generally, um, uh, you know, it's it, it's a wonderful thing that you know you can actually speak quickly, and we can we can arrive at decisions without a four-hour delay between every response. So it's not just the fact that typing is slow; it's the fact that although synchronous email exchanges get protracted over weeks, um, something that a two a ten-minute Zoom call would probably settle to the satisfaction of all participants. It's also good that it's slow, of course, if you're charging by the hour, but that's a, that's a totally different <laughs> matter. And you're absolutely right, conversations spark ideas. That's absolutely spot on. I couldn't agree more. So anyway, so part of my reason for optimism, and I see ways in which we change the way we work and the way we work together, what I'll also do now is just do a little bit of a kind of... Um, uh, where did it all go wrong uh, for the ad industry? And this refers very much to my time um, uh, in the ad industry. I joined in 1988. Now, in 1988, it was a useful time to join because virtually nobody, none of you, I, I'm guessing your ages, I can't see you, but none of you was around there because you saw the very, very last minute of payment by the hour. Now, when the internet came along, no one can accuse the advertising industry of not noticing or not making a lot of noise about it, okay? However, and this is important, I think, um, when um, payment by the hour stopped, I think we failed in two counts. And I think two very, very big things happened in advertising, in marketing services, that the ad industry completely failed to respond to in any intelligent or imaginative way. And the first one was that after we stopped being paid on commission, there was no reason to confine our skill set to those people whose problems came attached to a large media budget. Okay, that was a constraint on the size of the industry when we were paid on commission, because if we were paid on commission, if they didn't buy any ads and run any ads, we didn't get paid. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the second we stopped being paid by the hour, someone should have sat down and said, what does this mean in terms of who our customer base could be? And we sat down and tried to make money through fee in the same way that we were paid by commission. And no one sat there and said, but hold on a second, the selling of creativity married to human insights married to, I would argue, measurement and testing, is an applicable and valuable and rare talent which can be deployed in a hundred times more ways than in simply filling newspaper space and television airtime. 
And nobody asked that question because the muscle memory was so strong and arguably the status currency of I am, my status derives from the ads I produce, not from the value of my solutions, that no one spent any time looking for a wider target audience. And so I always describe an ad agency as being a general hospital, which kind of has a sign out outside the door, which says we offer cosmetic surgery. Now, we do offer cosmetic surgery, and sometimes that surgery is very valuable, but there are lots and lots of other problems we can solve which go far wider. And one of the things I love about running the behavioral science practice is we have a client base which includes, for example, the Thames Valley Police. Now, the Thames Valley Police are never going to be a big advertiser. And when I go to the Ogilvy New Business person and go, we're working with the Thames Valley Police, okay? Um, uh, they don't go, woohoo, this is going to solve our problem, because they don't see the Thames Valley Police as being akin to Unilever. <laughs> but the human value of the, you can create working with the Thames Valley Police with a creative mindset and a behavioral science mindset is every bit as great as the value you can create for a large advertiser. And we missed that. <laughs> and the second thing we missed, okay, is we missed the fact that our clients were changing in the nature of the businesses they were in. Mm -hmm. So when I first went into advertising, and as recently as I think 1995, two thirds of ad spend was packaged goods. So it was Unilever, P&G, that would include beers, it would include that kind of thing. Frequently, you know, fast moving consumer goods also of some shape or form. Mm -hmm. You know, soap powders, detergents, um, uh, you know, uh, beer, cigarettes even, back in the late 80s, okay? Of that, within the space of about 10 years, went from two-thirds of ad spend to less than a third, probably now around about a quarter. What took its place was insurance comparison websites, mobile phone handsets, IT, consumer electronics, uh, mobile phone networks, um, broadband providers, okay? A whole bunch of online retailers, a whole bunch of entities, which in many cases didn't even exist when I first came into the ad industry. But what was different about those companies was that the marketing person was a lot less powerful. And ad people continued going to Cannes and groveling to marketing directors without noticing the fact that whereas the marketing director in Unilever or in P&G was a valued person in many cases with P&L responsibility within P&G, the marketing director inside, say, an insurance company was treated somewhere like kind of reprographics with a degree. Marketing was not seen as a strategic function. It wasn't a board level function. It was a supply and service function. And it was seen as a cost and not a source of value creation. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go into Unilever or you go into P&G, the senior people in P&G or Unilever will all have spent a considerable length of their time working in the marketing function and will be happy using marketing vocabulary. Uh, if you go into an insurance comparison website and the guy there is an actuary with a background in finance and statistics and you start talking about brand iconography, uh, you sound like a whack job, okay? And what we failed to do was to realize we needed to science up our vocabulary to talk credibly to senior people within client companies who would of necessity be a large part of our new audience. Now, unsurprisingly, what you'll see is that behavioral science, I would argue, helps solve all of these three things. Mm -hmm. 
I'd also say that behavioral science is valuable because it's a kind of triage function in that before you've decided whether the solution is advertising, PR, large-scale media buying, um, B2B marketing, which may be actually the first point port of call rather than B2C, behavioral science can look open-mindedly at a business as a marketing ecosystem and decide where the gain can come best from intervening first. So that's one of my other great criticisms of the ad industry. It made money through advertising and therefore advertising is very expensive so when you went to talk to an ad agency they tended to talk about advertising questions first brand questions mm -hmm. now advertising and brand questions are hugely and inordinately important and in many cases advertising is the most valuable thing you can do to transform a business however that does not mean it should be your first port of call in problem solving and let me explain this importantly. I think, and there's a thing in sales promotion in shopper marketing, which is occasionally called shelf back planning. I think that when you approach any marketing problem, you should do the opposite of what an ad agency does. You should start from the end and work backwards. And everybody I've spoken to in complex systems, in complexity theory, uh, anybody who knows uh, Eli Goldratt's theory of constraints, basically says, yeah, you're kind of right. Mm -hmm. And the point I'm making is there's no point in optimizing the top of the funnel if there's a constraint in the bottom of the funnel. Mm -hmm. So the first thing to focus on, I would argue, is repurchase. And almost no one looks at this, by the way. No. no one says, okay, when someone's bought this product from you, how do you get them to buy more shit? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's considered a secondary consideration. The second thing would be conversion, and then the third, you know, and then you work your way up to the, up the funnel towards awareness and choice architecture and so on. Yeah. But the reason you should work backwards is there's no point in optimizing the top of the funnel if there's a constraint further down. I subsequently discovered that one of the best advertising campaigns ever run in Britain for a German luxury car brand, which you can probably guess, but which I can't name, <laughs> um, was briefly rendered totally ineffectual because there was a problem at the dealership, which is they would only allow you to test drive a car if you'd already spoken to the dealership's finance guy. Right. And because there was only one finance guy per dealership, this created a bottleneck where people weren't free to, to test drive the car. So they either would come back later when they could test drive it, which was limiting the number of cars you could sell, mm -hmm. or they'd piss off and buy a Mercedes because they were frustrated. Okay. Now that's a classic case. Ultimately, the guy solved that problem and the advertising proved to be almost insanely effective but there was no point in solving the advertising problem until they've solved the problem of constraint at the level of sales of sales room conversion sure. and i'd say that about the car industry in general until you've sorted out sales room conversion uh, there's not much point in doing great advertising and yet what we tend to do is we start far out and work our way in mm. now that's equivalent to saying there's no point in widening a road Okay, if 500 far yards further on, there's a really badly phased set of traffic lights. You've got to sort out the traffic lights first, only then is it worthwhile working backwards and widening the road. Because if all you do is widen the road, you just create a traffic jam further along the road. You don't reduce anybody's journey time. In the same way, uh, you know, if you optimize um, what you might call a customer journey, mm -hmm. you fix the traffic lights before you start worrying about the road widening. Yep, makes sense. 
And so these would be various areas of criticism about the ad industry. And beautifully phrased, what we've failed to do is we've failed to sell to two thirds of our clients, see marketing as a cost to be minimized and as a possible source of cost savings and efficiency gains, they don't see it as a source of value generation in and of its own right. Yep. Now, the economist Tim Harford, very br brilliant British economist and broadcaster, asked me once when we met at a conference, he said, why is your job so difficult? I said, what do you mean? I said, well, why do you find it so hard to sell companies on the basis of um, uh, individual value creation, uh, 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 of, of uh, psychological value creation? I go, well, I don't know, it's just really difficult. He goes, but why don't you just say Apple? Yeah. And his argument was the world's only trillion dollar company was a company which essentially was in the business of creating psychological value rather than technological value. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a marketing driven company. And the problem is that 90% of the companies like Apple have at their helm a guy with a background in finance or technology, not a guy who's the world's greatest instinctual marketer. Yeah. And therefore, in an engineering culture or a financial culture or in a technological culture, marketing is framed as cheating. Mm -hmm. It's seen as because your professional status comes from producing, impressing your colleagues who are coders by producing a superior intrinsic product. And therefore, if you win out through superior marketing, you don't gain any status. Now that actually happened within Apple. It's not widely known, but large numbers of the tech community within Apple hated Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. One of the great quotes is, I don't get what Steve even does. If you like, like Austrian school economics, which believes that value is generated in the consumer's head, rather than thinking like either Marxism or Chicago school economics, which somehow thinks that value is created in the factory, that value resides in the objective properties of the product, not in the stories around which you tell, yeah. the stories which you tell around that product, until you can get that community to think Austrian, mm -hmm. we're doomed. Yeah. Now, so let's just, okay, I'll move on here, okay? Creative agencies haven't been paid on commission since 1990, but we still behave as though we were. Once we were paid by the hour, what made us money became misaligned with what creates value. Now, what payment by the hour allowed was a load of managerial nerds to take over the ruling of the typical ad agency. My argument is that advertising is a rock star business in that a few very weird and very talented people maybe a few times a year, come up with weird ideas, slogans, stories, reframings, ways of looking at things, insights, okay? And these people are not all creative people, by the way, okay? Uh, just to be obviously clear on that. And they do that not very frequently, mm -hmm. but that 90% of the value generated by advertising agencies occurs in those fleeting moments. Absolutely. Well, Ogilvy said that in his book. Well. He, Ogilvy himself claimed he'd only had about five big ideas in his life. I think it's slightly self-effacing, <laughs> uh, to be honest. He also said, I can't do TV very well. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, you know, but but nonetheless, um, if you think about it, you know, the Beatles, 90% of their value was created in a, you know, a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, John Hegarty once worked for Paul McCartney and um, he was working on an ad and um, uh, he uh, and McCartney wanted a few changes made and, and, and John Hegarty said to him, he said, um, um, yeah, he said, uh, I'd rather have a, you know, a week uh, ready to go and think about this because nothing really good ever comes out of a short time. And Paul McCartney said, that's not true. I wrote yesterday in 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, now, whether that's true or not is a bit debatable. But um, years later, John Haggerty said that he still wakes up regretting the fact of not saying, yeah, but Paul, imagine how much better it would have been if you'd taken some time over it. Okay. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, a huge, you know, golfers, you know, most of your professional career as a golfer, you only spend about sort of, I think it's something like two and a half minutes with a club in contact with the ball in professional match play. Ma- match play. So, you know, okay, there's a bit of time wandering around, there's preparation, there's practice, but the real thing that distinguishes a championship golfer from an indifferent golfer is a surprisingly short amount of actual time. Absolutely. And so paying by the hour is wholly, wholly uh, inappropriate to creating healthy incentives for adding agencies. And what's more, the, the account people who take over think that what's valuable about what the agency does is what makes money, i.e. things that are time-consuming and tedious, rather than things that are magical. Mm-hmm. And so the focus of the agency disproportionately rests on those drudge-like, time-consuming, large, ongoing projects, rather than focusing on moments of alchemy and magic where you make five million quid in the space of a 10-minute phone call. And as a result, it's given too much power to account people who essentially account for time and and quantify it, Mm -hmm. and too little wealth and influence to the people who create that value in the first place. And, you know, my cynical point about Ogilvy is that, you know, I sometimes feel about any agency that's paid by the hour, that if I invented a cure for cancer and I went into Ogilvy and said, I think I might have come up with a cancer cure. People go, oh, that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I went in and said, I've renegotiated the Unilever blended re- hourly rate, you know, up by 1.7% for the financial year 2021 to 22, I'd be carried in on people's fucking shoulders <laughs> like a hero. <laughs> and so it's essentially you know it's a rock star business now by the way rock stars this is complicated because what i'm not suggesting uh, rock stars need lots of roadies and all manner of shit around them for them to function okay i'm not suggesting you can you know you can create the same business in isolation some of the people uh, who often have just spectacular organizational skills or persuasion skills are equally deserving of spectacular reward and spectacular emolument and real regard. Mm. But nonetheless, what we shouldn't do is try and turn this into a drudge business uh, where, you know, the value we create is somehow proportionate to the labor expended because nothing could be further from the truth. And when I said about my vice chairman role, which is it's a deliberately vague job title, one of the things that, um, uh, payment by the hour did is it compartmentalized our skill base now if you went to an agency and i can remember the kind of tail end of this in the 80s if you went to a j walter thompson in uh 19 
88. There would have been two or three quite well-paid people in the creative department who were in some ways dysfunctional, possibly unbelievably rude, maybe borderline alcoholics, um, who were kept on the payroll, essentially, no, you know, no client would ever say, I'd like this person on my account. Okay. But they were, they were kept on the payroll because four or five times a year, they could solve a problem that no one else could. Or they'd stumble into a room in a state of confusion and just come up with, you know, <laughs> seven words of magic. <laughs> now, the fact that we've compartmentalized our employment base, it also means that it was always the case that the best planners were often creatives monke and the best creatives didn't want to be planners, but they were fucking good at planning. Okay. And that kind of blurriness which used to happen in the old days, everything became much more kind of sequential and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of confused about process because I like process. I always regard it, I always say it's not process, it's a checklist. Don't regard it as process in the sense that you have to do these things in a specified order. Just make sure you do all of these things to ensure you're not missing anything. But when, when a checklist becomes going to process in an order, I think quite often, you know, I mean, a, a lot of the very best work was, by the way, a great creative idea, which was post-rationalized. And that's fine, by the way. A lot of the best scientific discoveries are a flash of inspiration, which is written up as though it was the product of kind of um, Baconian scientific experiment. The insight never arrived that way. OK, it's OK to post-rationalize, just just so you all know. OK, if someone, can, you know, I used to be in meetings and someone say, oh, you're leaping towards execution. What the fuck's wrong with that? Said, so, you know, said, so, you know, you don't go, you know, you don't go around a bloody teaching hospital and go, don't cure the patient. You're supposed <laughs> to be doing diagnosis, right? <laughs> you know, that's bullshit. If you can cure the patient, cure the patient. And so don't, you know, don't let your, you know, don't, you know, it's almost like don't let your strategy interfere with your tactics. You know, if you, if you happen to come up with a brilliant idea which instinctively feels like it's doing the job, rewrite your strategy around it. Yep. You know? 100% emergency. And so anyway, but anyway, the other thing is that we should do small. Now, this is the weirdest one, okay? I want to be able to work with small Silicon Valley startups. They're never going to be of interest to a standard ad agency, but they are, or some of them will be, the brands of the 21st century. We can't simply spend our time focusing on 20th century and 19th century brands, on keeping them fresh, or in more dire cases, keeping them on life support. We have to work out a way we can spot and work with 21st century brands, which, by the way, would mean in my own particular world, if anybody put me in charge, which is never going to happen, <laughs> I'd move half of bloody Ogilvy in the US to the West Coast. But there we go. You know, I don't think you should spend all your time focusing on that corridor between New York and Chicago. I think there needs to be a focus further west and a focus in India, by the way, as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, who's banging down the door of DJ in China? My guess is nobody. You know, it's an extraordinary new brand. Um, and so, um, so the interesting thing there is um, uh, the great thing with behavioral science is it's scalable. Now, Keynes always said of economics that he wanted to see an age when economists were treated a bit like dentists, where you rang up your local economist and said, oh, I've got a bit of a pricing problem. What do you think I should do here? And I think ad agencies should become a bit more like dentists, which is we need to find a way in which we can offer drop-in surgeries. You know, I mean, the thing that annoys me about, you know, the payment by the hour is everybody goes, oh, no, you know, if it's not like a long-term retainer project. So I go, well, 
you know, it's it's not about long. I mean, from a long-term retainer project, right? I mean, a lot of people like working, uh, and I'm one of them. Okay, uh, this is a really interesting question. Read whatever if you read nothing else. Read this paper by Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, who I'm proud to say is a Brit, um, who wrote a paper called. Uh, maker schedule versus manager schedule. It might be the other way around. It might be manager schedule versus maker schedule. It's one page of A4 and it's among the most brilliant stuff you'll ever read about different patterns of work and how different people like different patterns. And it always occurred to me as interesting, in this coronavirus crisis, we've had people from Formula One teams working with vacuum cleaner manufacturers to come up with a way in which you could produce a... Um, uh, either, for example, a CPAP machine, an oxygen machine, or indeed a ventilator uh, at a very low cost and manufactured at a very high speed. Mm -hmm. I thought, if you can do that that quickly under these conditions, why can't you do that the rest of the time? Sure. And it occurred to me, if you're the kind of guy who likes working in Formula One, your desired mode of life is either white-knuckle, sheer, pant-filling terror, okay, or idleness. Right. I imagine you have periods of unbelievably high tension and periods where you bugger off to the French countryside and wallow around. I don't know. Maybe I'm mischaracterizing these people. OK. And that's partly what I mean by the rock star business. That's how we like to work, I think, to a large extent. If you look at animals, one of the most interesting insights in animal behavior is that large, successful animals spend a spectacular amount of time doing bugger all. You know, and then they like to concentrate activity into short bursts of high excitement. Now, if you took people from a Formula One team and you made them work with NHS procurement and the standardized medical equipment approval process, my theory is that they'd basically be killing themselves with boredom in the space of about three or four days. I once found myself back and in a meeting on a drug company away day where they were discussing the launch of a new drug and by mistake i was not put into the marketing stream i was put into the project management stream <laughs> and i don't know if anybody knows this but you know very rarely and it's only happened about five times in my life boredom goes from being an irritant to becoming actually physically painful <laughs> so i was going to the lavatory about once every seven minutes just to escape this meeting and i dimly remember thinking about 45 minutes into this meeting of project managers you know uh, if i put my fist through this window how long would it be before i blacked out because i was literally finding the meeting it was it was actually uh, it was actually agony to me you know now i imagine if you're a formula one kind of engineer person right and the whole thing is how do we get a, a tire actually do they do tire check yeah they're, they're just refueling they don't do anymore is it i think no, but you know i've got to get a tire change down from 3.1 seconds to 2.8 yeah. then working with NHS procurement and medical equipment approval processes would be literally basically like dying. Yeah. And so one of the things we've also got to look at is pace. You know, is there a way in which in fast bursts, small teams of people can be brought in to go, let's just shake this baby up and clear off, hit and run, create creativity. Because this obsession with payment by the hour, and this is why, you know, we need people with vaguer job titles who, you know, who are useless at some things and just great at certain moments. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I've got a little example because I'm coming up to the hour and I'm conscious of this because if I see you dropping off, I understand you all have busy lives. So if I see the numbers falling, I'm not going to be offended. Mm -hmm. So anybody has permission to leave now. But I'm going to end with just a very nice little story. 
and um, uh, it's an example of doing small. Now, here is a hotel in Los Angeles. Now you can see from the pictures, okay, that um, you know it's not the Four Seasons. Okay, it's not um, the 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 Amman Group. I think that's what they're called, isn't it? Those fantastically expensive hotels. See, are they called Amman? I think it's something like that, isn't it? That's the um, a man group, yeah. Uh, okay, you know, it's a slightly dated building. It's slightly old-fashioned. The swimming pool is pretty tiny. The pool furniture is nothing to write home about. You don't have those weird square umbrellas, which mark the place out as a sophisticated place. Mm -hmm. Okay, now this is just a simple media-free way of transforming a business through a focus on psychological value. And it's, it's, it's something which many people in advertising won't have heard of. It's called Kano theory. It's the only thing I'm going to talk about now because I've given you my hour. And I don't want to exhaust everybody because as someone said, um, uh, you know, uh, the beginning of the 20th, 21st century is marked by uh, a headphone ear in the way that the beginning of the um, 20th century was marked by trench foot. You know, you know, the pain of wearing headphones is becoming a condition. So I'm going to try and end reasonably quickly. Now, what you'll see from this slide, if you've got it up big, is first of all, it's getting 222. That's probably 250 bucks a night, maybe 249. I'm guessing. Okay. Um, that's quite a lot of money, you know, off season. What's really weird about it is that if you look at the top, the TripAdvisor rating from 3,464 reviews, it's number six of 380 hotels in Los Angeles. Now here, I think what they're focusing on is not what gets people to come to the hotel, but what gets people to come back. Okay, so I'll click onto the next slide and what you'll see. Now, just to be clear here, the hotel is not crap. Do not tell the story as if it's a shit hotel, but they do these things right. No, no, no. As you can clearly see, the hotel is immaculately clean. You know, the beds are nicely made. Um, you know, the air conditioning unit is, you know, reasonably shiny. Uh, you know, um, and the building is slightly weird, but um, there's nothing run down about it. This is not the Bates Motel, okay? It's nicely done. But nonetheless, it's number six. There's pretty hot competition for Los Angeles hotels. I think we can reasonably infer. And this gets in at number six. And there you see the swimming pool. Again, not very big. Now, somewhere on this photograph is a tiny clue to one of the few things it does, which seems to make it number six in Los Angeles hotels, as well as being competent, clean, hygienic. I'm sure the service is very friendly. And it's that. I'm going to thank Richard Shotton, the author of The Choice Factory, for telling me this story, because I'd never heard of it before. Mm. Um, in the main photograph, there's a Popsicle hotline. And if you call up the Popsicle hotline while you're out waiting for a thing, someone comes along with an immense tray covered with um, frozen ice lollies, as, as Brits call them. We don't really use Popsicle, um, except as a term of endearment for, you know, partners um and then only rarely um but um and they come out and they deliver them and you have them for free now i also noticed that actually when you get your laundry back it's handwritten someone's drawn a little smile on it it's wrapped in brown paper and knotted with string which is really rather lovely in all sorts of ways and they put a sprig of lavender on it which i've stayed in blinged up you know, hotels all over the world. I've never had the spring of lavender. I think somewhere in Malaysia, I had something similar where they put a flower on top. But lavender is particularly nice to go with laundry. Mm -hmm. And my hunch is they get five or six of those things, right? The people are probably bastard friendly. And there they are, number six of the hotels in, in LA. 
okay? Now, I'll just briefly take you through the Carnot theory, and then I'll probably come to an end and give, give time to answer questions and do exciting things like this. This is Carnot theory, and it shows how the objective qualities of a product or service do not correlate with customer satisfaction in a linear way. And there are three components. There are threshold attributes. Now, that's the hotel being clean, the staff being pleasant, uh, you know, um, the manager not being a serial killer, you know, important stuff like that in a hotel, right? <laughs> but once you hit that threshold, getting better... So if you buy a particular brand of milk, what's the one called? Lander Lakes, if I remember, is the American one. Is that right? Um, but if you buy a particular brand of milk, and, you, and twice when you buy the land, the, the, that brand of milk, twice in three purchases, the carton springs a leak you're not going to buy that brand again, okay? So the absence of a threshold fu function is absolutely dire, but its presence doesn't create much excitement. Nobody brings their milk, milk home and goes, hmm, non-leaking carton, air punch, high five. <laughs> Whoa, that's my brand, okay? <laughs> that's the then you have performance attributes, which are usually surprisingly well correlated to the main central function of the device. And these are the things which scientists or engineers are trying to optimize. And here the relationship's kind of linear, okay? So if you were selling a cassette deck in the 1980s, it would be battery life, sound quality, build quality, um, uh, you know, volume, uh, you know, the power of the subwoofer, all that kind of stuff, which you can kind of measure. And there, it's good to be better, but up to a point, but there's nothing supralinear about that. Mm -hmm. And then where you get exponential is excitement attributes. Now that's your popsicle hotline right? That's, you know, I didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition for the Python fans among you. That's the thing which is slightly peripheral to the core function of the actual service or product, but which is unexpected and somehow delightful. Now, in the 1980s cassette deck or the 1990s DVD player, that would be the eject mechanism. You remember that? You pressed eject. Now, it was perfectly satisfactory if the thing went clack, but you didn't want to buy that one. Okay, that was rubbish. Whereas if the eject me mechanism gave rise to a kind of damped hydraulic mechanism with a hiss and a whir, <laughs> a bit like a door opening on the Starship Enterprise, <laughs> then you thought that was a brilliant cassette deck. And Carnot, the Carnot model of simply understanding, now what's interesting about excitement attributes, I would argue, in any of the new world businesses, which we have to make our clients which are full of engineers and scientists and rationalists and quantifiers, okay? The excitement attribute is precisely the thing the finance director wants to kill first. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because he understands threshold attributes, he understands performance attributes, but what you might call magic dust, it's the most potent translation of expense into psychological value is the bit the finance director hates most and therefore the most important competitive advantage a business or organization can have is a marketing function powerful enough that the organization can do things that the finance director doesn't want to do and that's more or less how i'm going to end okay that's why the empower of marketing and by giving marketing through behavioral science a scientific vocabulary, we can at least do something to translate marketing thinking into economic vocabulary. Sure. Right? <coughs> I talk to behavioral scientists who work in the Valley and Silicon Valley, and they say they're principally employed by the marketing director to go <coughs> and talk to coders 
to explain marketing in terms of evolutionary psychology or behavioral science that the coder actually understands or respects. Yeah. If we don't do this, and this is my final little fam uh, famous example. Okay, I'll end on this. They spent half a billion pounds, I think, renovating St. Pancras Station. Freud Communications, PR agency, all credit to them, every single press release about the new St. Pancras Station on which half a billion pounds have been spent on the architecture and the renovation and the acceptance of Eurostar trains and so on, every single PR, PR release contained the spectacularly oblique and tangential claim to fame that the, um, uh, the station contained the longest champagne bar in Europe, which apparently it does. I don't know how they really tortured the data to come up with this, because I've been to it and it's not that <laughs> fucking long. Secondly, it's not that important. Nobody ever goes, uh, I'm thinking of going to a champagne bar this evening, do you know any long ones? or I don't go to that champagne bar anymore, it's not nearly long enough, okay? It's not a very important criterion for a champagne bar. Mm -hmm. This single irrelevant fact is remembered by Londoners 15 years later. So if you ask a random selection of Londoners, where's the longest champagne bar in Europe? They'll go, oh, it's St. Pancras Station. But what it did magically, by its very gratuitousness, is it said this station isn't merely a utilitarian transit hub designed to minimize the inconvenience of people who need to make a journey. No, 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 no. This station is a destination in its own right and a place you might want to visit for its own sake. Mm -hmm. Thereby transforming a city's perception of a station. And there, okay, with a simple lesson in Carnot theory, Carnot is still alive, he was, was and probably still is, a professor at the University of Tokyo. It's one of the most useful mental tools you can uh, use in um, arguing your case against the follies of naive rationalists and quantifiers, and it's what I call marketing at its most basic and simple. Everything else you might argue is almost a build on that. But that to me, I hope it's been useful. And now I'm very, very happy to turn over to questions. Those people who need to leave, I'm going to stop sharing the screen um, very quickly. Uh, those people, I do have 10 questions I now see. Those people had to, who had to leave very shortly, um, on Twitter, okay, I'm at Rory Sutherland. And so at R-O-R-Y-S-U-T-H-E-R-L-A-N-D. So R-O-R-Y and then Sutherland as in Kiefer, which is pretty much where the resemblance ends. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, uh, and then you'll, you follow me on Twitter. I'm totally happy to do follow-up uh, answers to questions in that format once this thing ends. But in the meantime, um, I'm going to have a look. Shall I have a look at the Q&As? Do, yeah. do, do you want to compare? Well, I'm going to have a look at the chats as well. By all means. So uh, the first one that came in at 6.04, so uh, from Andrew Good, uh, so I hope he's still here, was uh, what super simple message would Rory recommend if you were trying to get SME manufacturing companies to engage in marketing? And I, I guess that can also be broadened uh, uh, out to... Uh, the, the, by, by the way, um, uh, 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 there is a whole new talk, at least an hour long, uh, which is being sponsored by LinkedIn, mm -hmm. which I'm shortly to give, which is about the totally underrated importance of marketing in B2B. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of extra reasons for this. Now, when I talked about the engineering stroke financial... Um, 
what, what was it that Eisenhower called it? Complex. You know, the engineering financial complex that hates marketing. Mm -hmm. It's all the more potent in B2B because the pretense in B2B is that once you become a B2B decision maker, you suddenly become extraordinarily rational. Yeah. In fact, behavioral and decision making biases are, I would argue, stronger when making institutional decisions than when making individual decisions. Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, one of the entities I see as a major, major, major source of opportunity for agencies in general and for marketing thinking and for creativity is in B2B marketing. Not only companies that we conventionally think of as B2B companies, which are SMEs, okay? Okay, but also in consumer companies that don't realize they're SMEs. I mean, Unilever probably spends more on its trade marketing budget than it does on consumer marketing. And yet they probably deploy 5% of the creativity and thought towards their trade marketing. But in SMEs in general, let's say it's a consumer SME, one of the things I love about doing behavioral science is the fact that it's scalable. And one of the things we do is we're very happy working for very small organizations or charities because what we learn doing for them, albeit at not much money, we can deploy at scale for much larger organizations. Mm -hmm. And so an example would be um, telling a local coffee shop that's on a busy road, okay, how do you signpost that you're open? Now, I don't know if the person in Somerset, who I noticed on chat, will be very familiar with this. In England, we have things called tea shops, which are not like coffee shops. They're tea rooms, they're usually called. And they have the most erratic and stupid opening hours of any retail category on the planet. So, for example, they tend to close at four o'clock, despite the fact that most people like to have tea at five. I, I have no clue what is going on. But the natural assumption as you pass a tea room is that it's closed, because they usually are. <laughs> yeah. Now... With my local coffee shop and a busy road, I said, you can put up a sign saying open, but that doesn't really work. I said, if you leave your furniture out and you make it kind of movable furniture and you leave it out whenever you're open, people will automatically assume you're open and they can see the fact from 400 yards away from a fast moving vehicle because they instinctively know that if you were closed, you would have to lock your chairs away to stop people nicking them and stop them blowing onto the road. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, so looking at the customer journey through human epistemology and through uh, the extraordinary power of humans, not only to observe things, but to draw inferences from them can be a complete act of liberation uh, in terms of an SME. And Carnot theory, by the way, if you read, um, I think it's called the 10 principles of customer satisfaction by a guy called, um, it's a friend of mine. I've briefly gotten his name. Um, well, oh, that's God, the hive mind again. <laughs> uh, well, the hive mind, well, I'm sure I'll come up with it. Um, I think it's called The Ten Principles of, uh, of Customer Satisfaction. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great, great book on customer satisfaction. You know, doing little things like putting blankets on the chairs outside so when it's a bit nippy, people yeah. can wrap up. Those kind of weird little gestures uh, can make an extraordinary difference. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Um, I guess one of the questions that's going to come here, and, and uh, it's our friend uh, Ludwig von Mises. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, doesn't differentiate between the value of um, the tangible and the intangible. No. 
Let, let me give you an example. This is my okay. This is my favourite story of marketing at its most scalable, mm -hmm. which is how you persuade. Apologies to people who aren't Brits here. How I persuaded my dad to get Sky TV. Now, my dad at the time was born. He was born in 1930. At the time, I guess he was about 80. And he'd spent 80 years of his life, effectively, where you paid for a TV license fee in Britain and the rest of your TV was um, free once you paid the mandatory license fee. Okay. And um, uh, I said, look, you, you know, I know he loves factual television. You know, the world at war is his idea of, you know, the greatest TV ever made, quite rightly, I think, in many cases. Loves factual, you know, you know, you know the Nazis of the Serengeti, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay, loves it, right? And um, so I said, you really like Sky because you get lots of channels that do this, but better still, it's really easy to record the stuff so you get Sky Plus and you can record it on a PVR. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, right, okay. Um, uh, yeah, but it's £17 a month. Yeah. And I said, well, I didn't, don't worry about that. I said, I'll pay for it for you. He said, well, no, he says it's too expensive. I don't want to spend another, you know, that's like, you know, that's like more than like 200 pounds a year. You know, I'm spending 200 pounds a year on TV. That's just too much to pay on top of the license fee. You know, I don't want to pay. Yeah. And I said, um, ah, right. This is pure, both Don Draper meets Ludwig von Mies. Okay. <laughs> I said, it's not 17 pounds a month. Thursday, Dad, I said, it's 60p a day. And he goes, well, what difference does that make? I said, well, you spend two pounds a day on newspapers. He gets at least two broadsheet newspapers a day. Right. And um, I said, you spend two pounds a day on newspapers. So you're spending two pounds a day on newspapers. It's not that crazy. Spending 60p to get another 120 channels of TV, is it? With 24-hour breaking news, BBC News 24, Sky News, you know, um, that wonderful Indian channel I watch occasionally just for a change of perspective, which I think it's called ND 24-7 or something. Um, okay. You know, I said, you get all of that, you know, for 60p a day. And, you know, you're spending two. He goes, no, I see what you mean. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Not only did he get Sky, he paid for it himself and then became a major advocate of Sky among everybody of his own age group, going around the Y Valley, going, you know, to all his 80-year-old friends. You know, I can't believe you haven't gotten Sky. What sort of ridiculous <laughs> and fool Luddite are you? You know, and he teases is my brother who's an astrophysicist from being unable to record television <laughs> and so the point that von Mises would say is that what something costs or what something's worth mm -hmm. is created in the head right, right okay whether something's expensive or cheap whether something is brilliant or shit I said just at the very beginning of my talk didn't I that zoom is more valuable to me than if WPP bought me a Learjet yeah now I, to be honest I, you know I quite like a Learjet mm -hmm. um, but um, if you think about it in my ability to, to do business uh, and ability to do what I'm doing now by the way yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the ability to bring in expertise from all over the world absolutely a very very simple thought thought experiment okay not many people in the world okay I'm excluding like Barack Obama and Tony Blair and you know and kind of you know people like that but most people in the world if you said I want you to just Ask, answer some questions, give us an opinion on a Zoom call, and I'll give you a thousand dollars. Okay, yeah. nearly everybody would say yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Whereas if you say we want you to give a keynote talk to our uh, marketing conference in Sarasota, Florida, yeah. uh, on the twenty seventh of September. What the speaker is charging for, and I talk to people who can charge much more than me. I mean, you know, Nassim Taleb and people like that who are real rock stars of the speaker circuit. Mm -hmm. And what you're really charging for isn't the talk. You know, you quite enjoy that, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's A, it's a commitment of time. Mm -hmm. It's a commitment of two and a half days because you can't really give anything 
uh, either side of that talk for you know if you've got to travel out to um, Tallahassee or wherever it is yeah. it's also a commitment of place now I can't go on holiday that week yeah now if I commit to delivering something over video um I can do that from Barbados. You know, all I need to make sure of is wherever I'm on holiday, there's a reasonable web connection. I take my, I travel with a kind of video conferencing kit. Nice. You can't see it. But um, <laughs> one good tip is buy a musician's music stand, right? From a music shop and attach all your shit like webcams and mics <laughs> to that stand. And it makes it quite a lot more portable than if you put stuff on a desk. That's wonderful. <laughs> so you can have a whole kind of video conferencing rig. I mean, actually, no, there's no way I can show you. I probably can show you bits of this if you yeah. want to. Yeah, there you go. You can see a bit of my, a bit of the rig there nice. uh, with a clip for a mobile phone, a clip for a, a tablet. <laughs> and that whole thing is, you know, if one of my daughters decides she wants to start playing thrash metal, yeah. I can then move into another room a bit more easily. That's amazing. That's so um, but, um, but, but, but um, the fascinating thing there is that, um, you know, this, this fundamentally changes the way that people will sell their time. It fundamentally changes the way we should apportion time. Uh, it changes where we should live. And I've always argued about technology. Um, if, you go, if you fly over Britain, the really important technologies, the railways, the canals, the, um, uh, the Industrial Revolution, etc., all their effects are visible from the air. Mm -hmm. And my great beef about the internet is, other than, you know, flying over the Googleplex or something, uh, the effect of, of um, internet technology is not yet visible from the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, what we should see is, you know, an explosion of people moving to the seaside or whatever, or, you know, uh, you know, or, you know, interesting. Vi I mean, I'm proposing that when we restart, when we kick off, that Ogilvy should have an, a, 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 an office somewhere out of London. Yeah. Uh, just for what you might call business continuity purposes. I'm particularly keen Margate's a particular favourite of mine. <laughs> on the grounds that you can't get creative people to move to the countryside, but you can get them to move to the seaside. I think that'd be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but Ogilvy, Ogilvy Thanet is basically my ambition for the rest of my working life. Um, but, but no, I mean, are we, you know, this is an opportunity to rethink things in parallel and to have a really big, uh, what, what we do. I mean, an awful lot of travel, by the way, was done. I mean, I hate to say this, you know, I love, I know I've traveled, uh, and it's very easy for me to say this because I've traveled a lot. Yeah. Uh, however, it's worth saying that the majority of business travel I did, I would have preferred to do virtually if it weren't for people demanding my presence. For sure, absolutely. I, I think it'll be one of the, the greatest effects of it. And, and to the point of hitting the reset button on an awful lot of things. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm beautiful phrase where we're heading to from a marketing perspective and the reason i say that is because i think a lot of people uh, view marketing as a function of the tactics that are implemented i think uh, a lot of the messaging that i'm seeing about marketing these days is one about empathy and looking to understand the customer and uh, looking to help people through this crisis but in a sense, it kind of feels like that's always been the point. That's always been the way that it should have been. So I'm struck, have you seen people deviate away from that, that view of marketing as the lens of the customer in companies? And if- uh, uh, What's vital about it, and I'm beginning to find a mathematical justification, is that uh, the customer view is at many ways at 90 degrees to the spreadsheet view of a business. Right. Because the spreadsheet view is 
uh, is a snapshot view of an aggregate at a particular time, whereas the customer view is the non-ergodic, path-dependent mm -hmm. experience of a customer in repeated interactions with the same entity. Yeah, yeah. And uh, business thinking without a marketer on board doesn't differentiate between selling one thing to 10 people and selling 10 things to one person. Yeah. To a business, they're both identical. To the customer, your expectation after you've bought 10 things may be very, very different, and your perception may be very, very different to the 10 people buying one thing. Uh, which why I think Amazon Prime, which, uh, which Bezos was kind of slated for when he first introduced it by almost everybody else. The point being that 10 people don't mind paying £3 for delivery once a month, but one person really resents paying £3 for delivery 10 times a month. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And so without a marketer at board level, companies are in danger of making spectacularly dumb decisions simply because they're seeing the business uh, through one angle. Yeah. And it is like looking, you know, looking at architectural plans from the top without seeing them from the front. For sure. Makes sense. And someone who's looking at the top of a building knows nothing about the front of the building. Yeah. And so the fact that they're kind of orthogonal in many ways uh, is, really, I think, really, really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So we have a question here from Ravi, and I'll probably, in the interest of uh, respecting not only your time but also the folks uh, tuning in, we've still got 107, so retained over half. I hope, Vernon, that introverts will be given some license uh, to opt out, uh, so that the introvert option will be seen as an acceptable parallel option to the extrovert option, uh, rather than. Um, uh, being seen as the um, uh, the inferior uh, alternative. I also hope, by the way, and this is an important point, I think, which is that certain types of social event will be repressed heavily, like the drinks party. You know those things where you can't hear a fucking word anybody's saying, <laughs> right? Because if you're over the age of 35, okay, if I go to an indoor drinks party that's indoors, I don't mind garden parties, okay, you're going to, I can't hear a damn word that anybody's saying. Okay, and yet to some extent, attending those events is almost a prerequisite for promotion at a certain stage in your career, and they're incredibly extrovert friendly and intolerable for introverts. And people are going, always oh, going, well, I don't understand how you're an introvert. Uh, how come you, you go and speak to a thousand people on stage? My argument is, no, no, no. When I've spoken to those thousand people on stage, I'm knackered. Okay. So it's more efficient for me to spend to speak to a thousand people for an hour than it is for me to speak to 10 people over a hundred hours, in which case I'd be basically, you know, no, no longer fit for conversation. And so it's not that introverts are shy. It's that they find social interactions energy draining rather than energy enhancing. Now, interestingly, as an introvert, I find Zoom uh, engagement uh, energy enhancing to a greater or at least neutral, whereas I find uh, you know speaking in in a physical setting mildly draining. So this is very common, by the way, among stand-up comedians. Everybody assumes that stand-up comedians get off stage, go straight to the bar, that they're cracking gags all night. They don't. They go back to their hotel rooms and sit in their pants and watch Sky News. <laughs> okay. And so it's worth understanding that introvert and extrovert are more complex and nuanced terms. But simply giving people the right to choose, I think, is really, really important. For sure. 
Absolutely. So we've got a question here. Uh, which tips? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Electronic meeting. One, it's got to be a video call, not necessarily because you need to look at people because it gives you something to look at. If you have a telephone conference, your mind will wander because 90% of perception is visual. And if your visual part of you is, that's why the radio is great because you can do other shit while you're listening to the radio. Okay. The reason the telephone conference is bad is because you can do other shit while you're on a telephone conference. A colleague of mine during an IBM telephone conference once took delivery of a flat screen tv and mounted it to the wall okay <laughs> um now what you have to realize is that the part part of the value of video is it gives you something to look at so you don't you, you don't start looking at emails or, or generally wandering off mm -hmm. uh, the second thing by the way to all of you under conditions of lockdown is if you've only got a laptop go on Amazon and if you can possibly afford it, buy like a 32 inch or bigger 4K monitor. Or if you really want to buy a big 4K TV, which is not much better than an HD TV as a t TV, until you plug your laptop into it with a USB-C to HDMI cable, in which case it's the monitor of a James Bond villain. Yeah. It is fantastic. Yeah. Trying to do everything on a screen that's 11 inches across is not what we should have been trying to do. So I'm, I'm, I have the picture of Joe up on a 32-inch thing. Uh, while I was presenting, it was my laptop screen which showed the, um, uh, the deck. Could have done it the other way around, wouldn't have mattered much. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, um, uh, if you can have that mobile tip with a, a buying a, um, uh, a microphone stand and some clips to attach to it, so you can have all your shit wired together on a single movable rig, so that if you do need to retire to a cupboard or something, you can, that's probably another good tip. For sure. I use a, a Yeti Blue as well. Yeah, no, I, I've got, fun enough, I've got the Yeti, the, the, the smaller version of the Yeti Blue, which is actually attached upside down to a tripod stand um, at the end of my mic. <laughs> um, uh, there you go. Actually, I can probably show you that. Here we go. There we go. Um, there we go. What, what are you seeing there? Nah. Are you seeing? So, there you go. And there's a, there's a spoffle stand to stop me gobbing at my own microphone <laughs> and an anti-pop screen. There you go. But this is, by the way, new business status. It used to be a BA gold card. The oh, new business yeah. status is to have an incredibly elaborate um, uh, rig with, uh, you know, with, if, you've got, if you've got a furry microphone that's upside down, you're basically gone. <laughs> you're balling. <laughs> yeah, you're balling. Um, we'll, we'll do two more, if that's okay, and then, and then mm -hmm. uh, we'll revert to Twitter. So uh, there's a question from Ravi. Uh, uh, the I Love You by Loon, very balloon, but it was bought for my wife by my daughter. Um, uh, the London bubble will burst uh, well the trouble is young people are obsessed with living in central London I think it's a mating thing I think it's that you can't pull if you live in Bromley <laughs> uh, I've, I've got a very Darwinian theory about this but actually the, the, the other crazy thing is that when people leave London they go miles away they will Cornwall the Cotswolds no no if you want lovely countryside, Orpington's far enough, okay? I can show you photographs taken from where Darwin lived, which is inside the M25, where you'd assume you're in the middle of the countryside. You don't have to go that far. Um, but will the London bubble burst? And that's a really, really interesting question. Uh, the great news is it certainly can't go up. 
<laughs> uh, it's my birthday lucky me how would you celebrate your birthday over zoom um i think having getting a bunch of friends together and actually having uh either drinks or if you're in that kind of silly mindset a kind of theme party could be quite jolly we do a catch-up every day for half an hour the 15 of us i've been slightly remiss because i've overslept for the last two days and i'm technically on holiday but it's basically we check on in each other's general mental state and um uh you know having having a meeting with no agenda is rather fun what's strange about this is i see friends of mine who now live in canada and other places worldwide more frequently than i ever did beforehand so in some respects it's social closening with physical distancing yeah couldn't agree more yeah absolutely um do 21st century startups want to work with that agencies um the marketing person is the last person they hire. So I think by that we can assume the answer is no. But you can use behavioral science or UX as a Trojan horse. Nice. Okay. Uh, the Carno model in B2B, I'm sure uh, it's highly relevant to B2B. You'll never get a business person to admit that the reason they chose something is because of something that, you know, they'd never tell procurement about. But actually, I think... Um, uh, put it this way, I think winning new business for Ogilvy, since we've got an office that overlooks the river, okay, mm -hmm. uh, is probably a little bit easier than it was when we were in Canary Wharf. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I mean, fun enough, most businesses understand Carnot theory when it comes to their offices a bit. Where they don't understand it is, uh, so um, rather lovely bit of Carnot theory is the Doubletree cookie offered by Doubletree Hotels, which is a branch of Hilton. Rather sweetly, under lockdown, they've published the recipe. Oh, nice. That's a um, uh, how the isolation would change digital marketing habits and how the COVID would change the ad narrative. Um, storytelling ain't going away. Advertising isn't going away. Don't worry about that because, as I said, uh, long before humans, there was advertising. Flowers are basically an ad. You know, they're a weed with a marketing budget. Okay, there's a huge amount of signaling in nature. The need for companies to signal something to advance and to use costly means to do it ain't gonna go away because I would argue it's innate in human epistemology and perception. Performance marketers, um, actually, uh, the problem with performance marketing is the emphasis on media relative to the emphasis on creative is completely out of whack. It isn't just me saying this, it's people like um, Google saying this. Um, I don't see many online performance marketing ads which have had a copywriter look at them. And yet, as Google will quite comfortably think, despite it, the fact that it's not in their financial interest to do so, because Google doesn't write ads, they will say that the actual quality of the creative is the biggest single determinant of the success of an ad. So start making the case for testing outlier creative approaches. If you can test them affordably with a very, very short, um, you know, kill rate, if they appear to fail, the cost of the test is trivial, the potential upside is massive, and it is asymmetries like that, which exploiting those and discovering those, which is what business is all about. What reading would you recommend us to read? Well, my own book, Alchemy, uh, obviously, <laughs> um, because my publisher wouldn't forgive me if I didn't. Um, uh, and um, But I'd also recommend reading, strangely, it's very strange thing, read a few books on economics. 
Tim Harford's The Logic of Life, for example. The reason for that is that most people who aren't marketers think like economists. And I often describe marketing as the science of knowing what economists are wrong about. And to understand your client, you have to understand the economic thinking, because it's only by understanding where their mental frame differs from yours that you can actually bridge the gap. So The Logic of Life by Tim Harford, maybe, you know, the Darwin economy. Also, to understand signaling in its more general sense, read a book called Spent by Jeffrey Miller, perhaps, or The Mating Mind, if you want an even weightier read, by the same author. Uh, how would you market a documentary filmmaking video school and, and training? Ooh. Uh, the background of the trainer, BBC. Uh, yes, uh, that is uh, in our little model. Uh, if you are BBC trained in um, uh, documentary making, you have international recognition. However, uh, I'd also do a little bit of emotion in that I'd give away a really, really, a couple of really, really simple tips. Um, one of the lovely things to give away as a kind of free sample of your thinking is anything which is obvious only once you know it. The lovely thing, I just bought a drone. Okay, now, now I, by the way, I, I'm not claiming I'm any kind of auteur or, um, or, or videographer. But you know, I was reading a little thing on drones and they said, the one great thing when you film drone footage is go backwards. Because when you move backwards with the drone, you're revealing new things as you pull out, which holds the attention more strongly than simply zooming into something. Now, the second I was told that, it was blindingly obvious, and I will never forget it for the rest of my life, but until I was told that, I would have spent hours and hours flying my drone around, zooming into things, <laughs> not realising that I was basically you know, making a mistake. Mm -hmm. Okay, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, but no, the BBC, um, uh, when you have uh, provenance and heritage uh, of that kind with international recognition, it's what we call in our mind space model messenger. Why should I accord you any credibility? Well, if you can hack it at the BBC in documentary filmmaking, uh, my satisficer instinct says, whatever you are, you're obviously not shit. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? At the very least, I won't be entirely wasting my money. <laughs> uh, so, and, and by the way, um, I, might, I might be in the market for what you offer because I suddenly realised that um, uh, making films is going to be 20% of my life for the next 10 years. Every conference that I used to fly out to and appear on stage to, I'm now uploading film footage for. And uh, I've already bought a gimbal. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on things like that. So, um, a cardigan, uh, this one's actually from ASOS. It's mohair. Uh, I bought it online a while ago and, um, a good tip for video conferencing early in the morning. Okay. A cardigan worn over pajamas for a bloke <laughs> normally means you get away with it. Okay. <laughs> so if you only want to wake up five minutes before your video conference starts, Cardigan over pajamas generally works. <laughs> what a tip to end things on. <laughs> Matt Watkinson, and I, I kept meaning to say Wilkinson. I knew it was a Matt. Yeah. The Ten Principles of Great Customer Experience by Matt Watkinson would be another book I'd recommend. So the hive mind has not let me down. Thank you. Yeah, what a talented bunch they are. They are wonderful. What a wonderful audience. Absolutely. And this has been, you know, I'm just off to get a cup of tea. Um, I, I don't now have to take a long train ride home. I don't have to spread COVID across the landscape.
uh, in and you know and I'm you know and uh, bear in mind it's extroverts who cause this bloody epidemic with their bloody <laughs> skiing holidays, isn't it? That's the first thing to go, skiing holidays. <laughs> skiing resorts, ski resorts are absolute petri dishes for this kind of shit. <laughs> well, we're grateful for... Uh... And, and notice Houston, right? I bet, I, 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 mean, I mean, compare Houston to New York, right? Mm-hmm. Place where people have a bit of, bit of personal space, right? Yeah. Compared to... <laughs> so Houston, which is, by the way, it's an extraordinary place because I visited as an accidental tourist mm-hmm. and no one would ever go there as a tourist. I ended up having a 24-hour layover. And um, as a uh, what a lot of Brits say, because a lot of Brits ended up there, and they said it's a terrible place to visit, but it's about the best place to live in the world. Yeah. And I can understand why, because it's, um, I kind of, even in 24 hours, I kind of really, really loved it. Yeah, well, it goes back to your point of, uh, of, of long-distance travel. And are, you, are you missing the Galleria? You must be missing the Galleria a bit. <laughs> I bought my wife my, her favourite necklace, I think, in um, Neiman Marcus in the Houston Galleria, which is a place I have an insane fondness for, because the food court in the Houston Galleria is, pro- is actually, forget Paris, it's the finest place to eat in the world. Now, it is the city with the highest obesity rate in the United States, which may be correlated, correlated. but whoever you are um, from Houston, that food court in the Galleria is seriously... <laughs> the, uh, the Hayes Gallery has got a bagel factory. Uh, the London Bridge, there's a Hayes Gallery. Of course there is. Yeah, my goodness. Okay. That's coming. The, uh, but you, if you haven't been to the food court in the Houston Gallery, you haven't lived. <laughs> so that's going to be a sudden surge in, in people heading to Houston. So, uh, joyous. Yeah. <laughs> in any case, we've exhausted the questions and uh, we have taken more than enough of your time, Rory. So it's a recording, because if I can share yeah, the recording. Absolutely. absolutely. It's recorded. It's going to go up on the blog. Uh, it's going to go mm. up on the podcast as well. Um, and if people have any more questions, then they can hit you up on uh, Twitter at Rory Sutherland as well. I know that you're particularly active on there. So, uh, absolute pleasure. Which well, is useful to me because often what's glorious about this compared to speaking in the physical world is sometimes people ask me a load of questions. Now I can just go watch this film <laughs> rather than having to repeat myself. So, well, thank you very much for that. It's been a joy, and see you in the real world at some point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can't wait. Really happy. All the best. Thank you very much. Have a great evening and stay safe and stay indoors, folks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now.